buck up, buck up, buck up, buck up, buck up, buck up. <laughs> you know the deal. And we're live. Hey, mama. <laughs> hey, Choo Choo. <laughs> How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Good. It's been an exciting week. Yeah? Yeah. How so? Well, because uh, our listeners may not realize this, but we're a little bit ahead of them. And uh, we just published episodes one and two last week and episode three today. And the response has just been so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Seems uh, to be gaining a little bit of traction and... uh... You know, we're getting some of our some of our friends in here to ask some questions and to spark yeah. some interest, which was yeah. uh, the um, goal of this podcast. Right. I mean, we've gotten some really nice reviews, and I've gotten a number of questions, which kind of leads us to today. Um, so I've been getting a lot of feedback from our sphere and extended sphere. Um, and uh, wanted to try, kind of just uh, thrash out some of these ideas with you. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point we've we've covered a lot of ground, and um, it's a lot of information to digest in a short period of time. And I thought it might be nice to just step back and uh, you know answer some of our audience's questions as well as some of your own. And uh, just kind of do a little recap episode after, you know, last week was kind of technical heavy. Um, so. Yeah, so I haven't yeah. recovered from that one, but um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So, um, and some of this, I think may be a review by the time our listeners are, are hearing this episode, but uh you know, I think it kind of breaks it down, you know, the question and answer as opposed to um, the conversation. So as opposed to just you explaining, you know, in paragraph form, I think this is maybe uh, going to simplify things for for some of our audience. Um, you know, and I don't realize uh, maybe I've actually picked up a few things over the years. So some of this is actually a little bit simple for not simple, but uh, basic for uh, my understanding of where we are. So um, I think really this first question comes from uh, Jordan in Wyoming. I think he's in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So <laughs> who would think Bitcoin would be in Cheyenne, Wyoming? But uh, I think it's kind of everywhere now. So uh, Jordan wants to know, if you could briefly explain the difference or distinction between Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Is Bitcoin a cryptocurrency? And if so, uh, what makes it the most successful, widely known one? And are the principles that apply to Bitcoin applicable to all cryptocurrencies? Yeah, and uh, thank you, Jordan. This was actually my favorite question that um, we received. Oh, okay, which is great. why it's going first. Okay. And I had planned on touching on these topics in future episodes and maybe even dedicating one 
uh, solely to um, not this specific question, but maybe the answers that relate to it, I wanted to dive deeper into, but I will answer it uh, briefly. So um, in the sense that Bitcoin, so first of all, Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. See, um, I even knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned at least a smattering. Okay, go. And um, in terms of the principles that apply to Bitcoin, uh, do they apply to cryptocurrency more generally? And I will answer that with a yes. Um, and I will also answer it with a no. Um, to start off, um, in terms of the software, Bitcoin, um, it's infinitely reproducible, right? So the Bitcoin blockchain was a new way to uh, communicate and store data for transaction purposes. And as I mentioned, it's infinitely um, reproducible. So we have seen an explosion of cryptocurrencies as a result of this. So in that sense, uh, you know, you could copy paste Bitcoin and make Bitcoin two, and it has all the same properties of Bitcoin one. Oh no, that sounds scary. <laughs> However, uh, what makes Bitcoin different than other cryptocurrencies is a few things. And first and foremost, I think because Bitcoin was released with having zero value and because the founder is not known and that the software was just distributed to an email list of enthusiasts looking into the subject of cryptocurrency and crypto anarchy, um, it, it gives Bitcoin a different starting point than these other coins. So Bitcoin circulated for, I think, almost two years having no value. And as more and more people adopted it on the free market, um, there was originally um, a Bitcoin pizza transaction, which was the first time Bitcoin was exchanged for something of value, which was two pizzas. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This sounds a little familiar. I forgot this story. Go ahead. And as Bitcoin, you know, from that starting point started to have value. And from there, it grew all the way to, you know, around $20,000 or I think it's almost a $300 billion market cap and now back down to two fifty. But um it's grown organically and in the free market and people have chosen to use Bitcoin and that's how it accrued value. Um, every other cryptocurrency was issued by a founder or a group of founders who have kept a portion of their total supply for themselves in a way to, uh, you know, either enrich themselves in some of these, you know, more nefarious schemes or to compensate themselves for the hard work they put in to building their own cryptocurrency in their kind eyes. Of, 
kind of like a general partner in a uh, real estate transaction as opposed to limited partners, right? Kind of like that. Exactly. And I think that dynamic is what makes Bitcoin different. It was not released with the intention of enriching its founder. Um, Satoshi, even though he has a large portion of the total supply, was mining Bitcoin in the free market um, after the release of the software to earn his coins. There was no what's known as a pre-mine, which is what these other development teams have kept for themselves as compensation for their efforts. What's it called? A pre-mine? Pre-mine. So mining is the way that the new units enter circulation. And a pre-mine would be keeping an allotted amount for yourself before the release of the system. So can we go back to that pizza maker again? How many Bitcoin did they pay for those pizzas? Uh, I think it was 10,000 Bitcoin for two pizzas. So in today's dollars, uh, they were very expensive. Oh, wow. (laughs) Those have to be the most. (laughs) So... 10,000 Bitcoin? 10,000 Bitcoin. So it's like 10,000 times 11,000 because Bitcoin's around 11 today? Mm -hmm. Wow. Those are some expensive pizzas. Okay. You know, some of our questions, um, some of our later questions are related to using and spending. And that's one of the reasons people are hesitant to spend their Bitcoins. But we'll get to that later. I know my son, Justin, doesn't like to spend his Bitcoins. No. He doesn't even like to pay his mother back in Bitcoin. That's true. (laughs) So let's move on to the next question. Okay. Thank you, Jordan. Um, um, Okay. So our next question comes from Steve in Miami. Uh, And he says, okay, he knows that there's a limited number of Bitcoin, which we have covered. We know that there's 21 million. Am I right? That's correct. Okay. Um, But his concern goes like this. Money supply always grow with the growth in populations and demands. Why can't that be changed or expanded? Okay. So um, the last question, why can't that be changed or expanded? I'm going to assume he is referring to uh, the, the, the supply of Bitcoins within the system. Yeah, I, think, I, I make that same assumption. Go ahead. And I think we've covered this before, um, and it has to do with the incentives of the system. And we discussed um, if you own a certain portion of a pie, why would you choose to dilute your own portion of that pie? It's not in your self-interest. And one of the things Bitcoin does uh, so effectively is that it channels uh, the inner greed that humans have to protect itself from said humans. So everybody is working in their own greedy self-interest within the system, but that's how the system guarantees its own security, which is a beautiful design mechanism, right? Because systems are only as strong 
as their incentives. Uh, yeah, it's pretty brilliant. And also they've already sort of, they built in, uh, in a sense, the supply, right? Yes. By, the, by the having every, whatever it is, four years or whatever it is. Correct. So uh, the, the supply is still expanding, but the key is that expansion is known and it's not going to change. So that's to answer the second part of the question. And to answer the first part of the question, we will kind of kind of separate how money grows in society. So there's the more free market aspect of uh, money supply expansion. And in traditional economics, this is the distinction between M0, which is base money, M1, M2, M3, which builds upon it. And in the free market, money usually expands through lending. So if I give $10,000 to the bank, um, I, have a, I have an asset of $10,000. The bank has a liability of $10,000. The mm-hmm. bank will go and lend that money out. So then they have a loan, which is an asset of $10,000. And then the borrower, whoever that may be, has a liability of $10,000, right? So you now have just uh, created two assets on, a bal- on someone's balance sheet and two liabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the current reserve requirement regulations, that $10,000 can be lent out up to nine times its value. So I don't think I knew that. The reserve requirements for banks, I believe, are 10%. So they need to have base money in their possession that's worth 10% of their total loans outstanding. So that same $10,000 that I went to the bank, they can go ahead and lend it out uh, up to $90,000. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that process does not require the expansion of base money. Right. That's not even money supply. Right? It is total money supply, but it's not base money. That's why I tried to draw the, the distinction. There's also, um, through quantitative easing and other government uh, fiscal spending, et cetera, et cetera, you can... You, you can expand the total supply of base money, which is what um, you know, monetary policy and fiscal policy have been working to do over the last few months in response to coronavirus. And right. I would um, posit that um, the, the expansion of base money is not necessary. Um, are, well, from, are, from what I know about you and your perspective on money, that's one of the things you like about Bitcoin is that it's finite. Correct. So in an economy, when things are going well, the money supply should expand, as he's alluding to, but in uh, contraction periods when the economy goes the other way it should decrease because there's less demand however 
um, our regulators in those times choose to print more base units in order to stimulate the economy in order to kind of flatten that economic cycle. But what's been happening is uh, the consequences of that printing to fill that gap build over time through multiple economic cycles. So you're not getting, you know, the natural expansion and contraction of the economy. You're getting um, natural expansion, but when it tries to contract, we are replacing that contraction with uh, new additional units, which the population has to bear the cost of. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that is, uh, I know that's something that, that sticks in your ribs is this monetary policy. Correct. Yeah. So, so uh, anyway, thank, thank that you, was Steve. a very detailed question to, um, I think what was meant as a fairly simple question, but thank you for that. The, 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 the simple answer to that is base money supply does not need to grow, in my opinion. I think that's something we're told by the people in charge of our money, but um, I think that is a fallacy. Okay. Okay, so that sort of leads into um, something one of our investment advisors is was concerned about was how Bitcoin is regulated, how it's regulated across borders, how it's how is it controlled if it's not regulated, and then it sort of gets into the whole um, anxiety of its volatility. So that's sort of a bunch of questions at once, but. I'll repeat whatever you need. So how do they regulate Bitcoin across borders? That is a difficult question to answer. I don't really have a great, um, great answer for that other than to say that um, Bitcoin, if it is successful or continues to be successful, uh, the whole point of Bitcoin is not to be regulated, right? So I can send money from party A to party B without anybody's permission. That, that kind of, the, the nature of the property um, allows for new types of use cases, some good, some bad, but that is just a, a fact of the system. To answer the second question, how is it controlled if it is not regulated? Um, Bitcoin is a system of self-regulation. And we touched upon the incentives uh, briefly beforehand. But, you know, the rules of Bitcoin are set in stone. And as long as you follow those rules, you can use the system. And that system is regulated by its own users because of the rules set forward at the release of the, the launch. And changes are very hard to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the third question um, on volatility. This is everybody's, by the way, this is sort of 
everybody's question is about volatility. It's been a recurring theme. Yes, it has. So you, you have a money system, right? And 10 years ago, it was worth nothing, had no value. And today, it's worth $250 billion. So you tell me, how do we get to a system that is trying to go from zero all the way to world reserve currency without volatility. I, I don't see how that's possible. And Bitcoin as a network gets to benefit from um, network effects in the growth of its users. As uh, more users come online, it is more valuable to all of the users, right? Right. So, you know, the types and um, length of users who come into the system, you know, are, are, are reflected in the price. So there, there's a lot of traders trading Bitcoin, which causes, you know, liquidations, which makes the price go down. And, um, you know, people are shorting. When they get liquidated, the price goes up. So it is a volatile price discovery process. But in order to go from, you know, zero dollars to world money, you, you can't get there without volatility. Do you see, now this is, I guess, my follow-up question. Do you see the volatility sort of evening out a little bit as it becomes more widely used? Uh, yeah, I mean, it has to. You have more capital required to either enter or leave the system in order to move the price as the overall price of it grows. So volatility should dampen over time. Right. Do you see that happening as yet or not really? Uh, I think it has, like, yeah. Uh, it seems to me like it doesn't have quite the same. I mean, right? Didn't it go from like 19,000 down to... 4,000 or 3,000 or something at one point. We haven't seen that well, more in more recent Well, on March, on March 12th, the, the price dropped 50%. I'd say that's a pretty big move. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. So but yes, the, the volatility should decrease over time. Okay, all right. Um, so... Uh, for the right retirees out there, I, I have a question from uh, Joe in Color of Gables. It's like, at this point in my life, I don't need the risk or return of entering into an unregulated, non-transparent investment instrument. So would you recommend Bitcoin for older investors? Um, so I would say to this person, it's all a matter of position sizing and what you're trying to do with your assets. So if you're trying to live off of your assets for the rest of your life as a retiree, um, I think there are more stable uh, cash flowing assets that you can go into, but this would be a matter of position sizing. Uh, just as an insurance policy or, you know, just to get a little bit of extra return, you know, Bitcoin 
has acted as a non-correlated asset for most of its life. Um, the last six months or so, it's been pretty correlated to the rest of you know, the performance of other financial assets. But if you are trying to um, estate plan, and this comes to our next question, um, if you're trying to leave some wealth for your family and heirs, um, I think it does make sense to put a portion of your net worth into Bitcoin because your offspring may be more interested in it than you are. That's an interesting point. Um, how do you assess, kind of before we go on to that, that topic about estate planning, how do you assess the risk? Is there a way to assess the risk? Well, risk uh, can be defined in a lot of different ways. I, I, I'm not really sure how to, to answer that question. Okay. Like Bitcoin is risky? Is that your... Yeah, I guess so. How do I, how do I answer, like, you know, how do I be comfortable with the Bitcoin system? Because that's a question that we'll get to later. Okay. Um, and to answer the first part of his question on it being unregulated, um, I, I think that is one of the value propositions of Bitcoin. And assuming it can function without regulation, why would you want to add regulation? And to answer the non-transparent part of it, that is the most beneficial Eh, maybe not the most, but one of the beneficial parts <laughs> of Bitcoin is that it is transparent and that you can verify your own transactions. You can verify your own scarcity. I mean, this is the most transparent system um, that exists. Yep. Well, this is also somebody who probably really doesn't have a whole lot of understanding about Bitcoin at right. all. This, so. this is more of a technical conversation and how the software works. But while you have the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain kind of controlling <laughs> the U.S. economy and the money supply and all, you know, all this stuff that none of us understand, uh, Bitcoin is a transparent system where you can go and look up what the money supply is, what the yep. issuance rate is, what trans what the transaction count is, what you know, what your balances are. It's all a self-verifying system because of the transparent nature of it. So I think that's a little bit of a misconception. Right. Okay. So if you're that pizza maker and you now have ten million dollars in Bitcoin and you need to plan for uh, the next generation and estate planning. How, how would one even deal with that? So um, you would, first of all, use an attorney, much like uh, you would in the traditional uh, banking system to come up with a plan. But, you know, this, this is a more uh, personal conversation with how you want to manage your own keys. Right, so, right. That's what I was wondering. Like, how would you do that? You would give them to your 
to your heirs? Would you give them to your kids? Would you give them to your estate attorney? Can you trust your estate attorney? Again, that comes down to a personal decision on who you trust both um, to execute the plan as you want it executed and also to handle the technical proficiency to execute that plan. I, I would assume if you had $10 million in Bitcoin, so first of all, you can hire certain companies to help with your estate planning, both from a tax perspective and a transfer of ownership perspective. And, oh, you can? And are they to be, how do you know they're to be trusted? You know, there, there's some creative, um, you know, we talked about multiple key signatures. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you wanted to make an estate plan and you wanted to make a two out of three key signature, which means you need two signatures out of the three that have been created, right? So if you hold one key, the estate planner holds one key and I hold one key, right? Alone, nobody has the power to move those Bitcoins. You need some sort of collaboration between, you know, you and I or you and the estate planner in order to execute that transaction or me and the estate planner. So if you were to pass away, um, the estate planner would sign and I would sign and then it would be in my full possession. Got it. Yeah. I knew there was something about these multiple keys, but we never really, I don't think we've discussed them on the air. No. Okay. But, um, you know, another way to do that is just to hand over your keys to your kids. But you obviously Uh, don't want to do that before um, the day of reckoning. Well, but the problem with that is, you know, how does it get divided equally, et cetera, et cetera. So you do need a third party to be handling that, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have somebody who's technically proficient, you can, you, you can express those rules on the Bitcoin blockchain. So you can, you can time lock a transaction so that the Bitcoin can't be spent for 10 years. Or you can oh. use a multiple key signature scheme. You know, it, it really depends on who is... Um, kind of doing this. So you can sort of put them in trust? Uh, yeah, I think there are ways to do it. I'm not an expert on that, but there are um, services who will help you with estate planning. That's, uh, it's amazing how adaptable we all are, right? <laughs> the, the free market is a beautiful place. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, which this is sort of akin to the question of security. Um, we've all read about Bitcoin being hacked or stolen. How do you secure it well enough to bring trust into the system? That comes, uh, that comes from Jason in Dallas. Um, <clears throat> so most of uh, the stories you hear about being uh, Bitcoin being hacked or stolen are outside of the protocol. And we've touched on this before. Uh, Bitcoin itself has had um, a few bugs over the years. I think only one of them have been exploited. 
but has since been fixed. I think back in like 2010 or 2011, some couple billion Bitcoin were printed and the chain was rolled back to fix that. Fortunately, it didn't have a, you know, a huge user base back then. So they were able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But today, um, I I think the dynamics of the system are much different than back then. But, um, you know, the Bitcoin being hacked is usually coming from an exchange um, who hold, you know, a hot wallet, which means they're exposed to the internet. That makes them uh, able to be stolen. Okay. So that's where the hacks, most of the hacks that you hear about are, you know, keys being stolen that are online. Right. Which I think you covered in, uh, I think maybe episode four um, was about hot wallet, et cetera. Yeah. So that brings up sort of full circle. That's helpful. Um, Okay. And then that was also about like, for example, we were talking about like the cash app right? That you only want to keep a small amount in something like something in something like the cash up. So if, if that's I, I, I want to just put, I just want to put an asterisk on that. Sorry for cutting you off. If you're comfortable taking possession of your own Bitcoin, this is a system of trade-offs. And sometimes uh, the Bitcoin, unfortunately, would be safer in the hands of an exchange than your own but I would recommend to try and do the research and get the education to take control of your own Bitcoin in a safe and, um, you know, understandable way. I think that was a great uh, little piece of info worth repeating, even though we covered that, I think, early in an earlier episode. And Um, just to answer the second part of the question, how do you secure it well enough to bring trust into the system? Um, I think it's a matter of time and understanding and both have grown. And as a result, the value of the network has grown, which has brought more trust to it. Right. It's a, it's a growing natural uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's becoming a little bit more widely understood. So uh, that certainly is in its favor, I believe. Um, how about this one? This is like so simplistic, but yet so important. With it being an electronic digital currency, what would happen if the computers changed or if we didn't have the power we needed to use it so um to answer the first question what happens if there's i'm assuming if computers were to change would be referring to if uh, computers were to evolve in order to render some of the security aspects of bitcoin obsolete this can be handled Messily, I, I, I don't, I don't want to claim this would be a smooth transition, but there are certain technologies that exist that we could change the consensus mechanism to. 
but there's not really an impending uh, reason to do that. And Bitcoin development is very conservative uh, by nature because it is securing people's value that those kinds of changes would not be made unless there was a serious panic. And to um, answer that question in another way, uh, most of the way Bitcoin works, which is, you know, cryptography and public and private key pairs is how um, a lot of uh, data is being stored in the world, right? Everywhere from your legacy bank account information to the nuclear launch codes. So I, I think we'd have a pretty big problem if these types of encryptions are broken beyond just Bitcoin. Um, you're not safe in the traditional system uh, if that were to be the case anyways. Wow. Um, that's, that's really expanding <laughs> the concept to make yeah. it and much to more worldly. Talk about, um, you know, if the power goes out, uh, this is a more, you know, complex question. Is it, is it a short-term outage? Is it a long-term outage? Um, I know, uh, Bitcoin developers currently are trying to build systems outside of the internet. Dad asked me the other day, what happens if governments just shut the internet down? Right. Which is okay. another risk. But yep. uh, Bitcoin developers are trying to build uh, either uh, satellite services or mesh networks or other ways to communicate this data that don't strictly rely on the internet. Um, they're all making progress, but they're not quite there yet. Um, I think one example to look to is in China. So we've all heard of the Great Firewall, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So China, uh, their internet system limits what people can see, what people can do. But you look at usage of Bitcoin in China, and it's one of the highest in the world. So it seems to be working despite, you know, Chinese efforts to control their internet. So I didn't think you could see where Bitcoin is being traded. How would you know that it's in China? That's just from how much polling data or I, I don't know how, you know, it, the Chinese exchange data, which are companies, um, not everything is, uh, not all the information about the market can be gained from the protocol, even though some of it or, uh, you know, a lot of it can be. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how they know about usage in China. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Here's some more simplified, simplistic question. Lauren in San, in San Francisco wants to know, where can I use Bitcoin? <laughs> What are you supposed to do with those Satoshis and Bitcoin once you have them? Should it be treated more like a 401k or savings account that you don't touch? Or is it more like buying and selling stocks regularly? So uh, where can I use Bitcoin? 
uh, holding Bitcoin, again, I will repeat, is using Bitcoin. So using Bitcoin as a savings vehicle, right? I've compared this to a piggy bank on more than one occasion. Yes, so you have. Bitcoin is my piggy bank. That is my use uh, for a Bitcoin. And, you know, one of the, one of the issues, um, you know, Bitcoin acceptance is growing. However, it's really hard to get people to spend something that they view is going to be more valuable or significantly more valuable in the fruit in the future. Right. So in our, how high can Bitcoin go episode, I express that my opinion is that Bitcoin will reach a hundred thousand dollars sometime before the year 2022. That is huge. So why the heck would I spend my Bitcoin? <laughs> because you love your mother because you love to pay her. <laughs> in little Satoshis. <laughs> well, there you go. That's where I can use Bitcoin is to pay you back uh, for, for a generous. Well, I, I, that does make me understand more um, why you don't want to spend them. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess your answer to Lauren is, yes, it's savings. Don't yeah. use them. It's but then if you don't bank. use them... What's gonna, what's gonna make them more user friendly if nobody's using them? So the the, the user experience relies on um, you know develop developers writing and releasing software, right? Uh huh. As apps get more easier to use, then use becomes easier. Right. That has nothing to do with the stash of Bitcoins that you own. But mm. I, I would recommend, whether you're a novice or an advanced level user of Bitcoin, it's always good to uh, send you know, some transactions, even if they're to yourself, just to keep your schemes and uh, awareness of the protocol at a functioning level, Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So if I move Bitcoin from one wallet to another, I can verify that, you know. It's I, working. It's still working, correct. So is there a reason to have, like, I, I know I have my 12 keywords because if I didn't, you wouldn't have been able to help me restore my wallet. But is there a reason to have more than one wallet? Uh, yeah, for sure. There's definitely a reason to have more than one wallet and there's definitely reasons to have uh, more than one types of wallet, right? So if you, if you were using Bitcoin on a regular basis as a part of your business, et cetera, et cetera, you would probably have one hot wallet that would, you would use for, um, you know, regular transactions to receive and send. And you'd also have a cold wallet where you could store the majority of your Bitcoins, so that would require two wallets. Okay, but that would be all you'd really need, right? Because then you don't, otherwise you'd have too much to keep track of, right? It, it is a lot to keep track of. Let's see, how many wallets do I have? I don't know. I only have one. 
and I'm happy I have that. <laughs> I think I have over five wallets and under 10. Really? Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to talk about that more, but okay. we don't have to do that right now. Like, that's a lot of wallets. That's a lot to keep track of. And if you don't keep track of it, they just, then yep. they become an unused gift card. They become a donation to the Bitcoin network. They sure do. Yeah. That's a, that's a scary thought. Yeah. Right? Like all those unused uh, gift cards. That's right. Right? They're just a donation to whatever company it is. Okay. It's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then I don't know really what this is, but maybe you do. Uh, are you familiar with M-Pesa? Uh, yeah, I know a little bit about M-Pesa. And, and is that something we should be talking about? Is that something you want to get into today or do you want to skip yeah, that I mean, one? We can. Okay, I don't even know what it is. So can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. To also explain to our listeners, the question is, can you compare Bitcoin to M-Pesa? Right. Um, so M-Pesa is a banking application uh, that works through um, mobile phones in Africa to provide uh, most African citizens who don't have banking, uh, you know, services, the banking services they need. But just to read from here, let me get to their Wikipedia. That's what, that's where I looked it up. That's as much as I know. <laughs> so it really has nothing to do with Bitcoin, does it? Or it doesn't. Here we go. The service allows users to deposit money into an account stored on their cell phones to send balances using pin secured SMS text messages to other users, including sellers of goods and services and to redeem deposits for regular money. Users are charged a small fee for sending and withdrawing money using the service. Okay. So obviously this can use uh, multiple different types of currencies right? It doesn't specify what kind of money. Right. And Bitcoin is a money. Um, it does have its own payment system within uh, its own network, which you could compare to M-Pesa on, you know, ease of use or censorship resistance or number of users. You could compare all of that type of right. stuff. But Bitcoin is its own money. And M-Pesa uses money, you know, X money to provide banking services to its users. So in some ways um, they could be compared and in other ways they cannot be compared. Right. I guess it's just the digital transfer of money, but it's not a digital money. Correct. Is that what the difference is? Yeah. It's the same thing with comparing Venmo and Bitcoin and, you know, there's, the middleman, there's right. the, the censorship. Right. I think this one, that question comes from one of our South African listeners. So I think that's why specifically that question. Anyway. All right. So I think, uh, 
That's all the questions we had for today. For today, there's only, <laughs> there's only about uh, 21 million more questions. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm considering, um, you know, doing these types of episodes every every few or so, so we can just recap some of the stuff we've discussed. Um, if I haven't, you know, explained something clearly enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we'll we'll revisit those topics, but uh, well, I think I think the second time going through it, it it just feels uh, more simplified. It just um, is easier to to absorb. There you so go. I think I think that was great. I think that's really great. Cool. So uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Just. We will uh, we will pick up next week. Okay, sounds perfect. All right. All right, take care of those little Bitcoins. (laughs) Thanks, Justin. Okay, hon. Bye.